You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning, everybody. Sorry we're running a little late. It's a lot easier for me to say this morning that the preacher got a little long-winded because I didn't preach. Uh, but uh, delighted to have Bishop Buchanan with us. I want to be able to take advantage of as much time as we uh, possibly can. Bishop, I think that you know that we kind of have a drop-dead time at quarter till the hour. Uh, So uh, don't be offended if I begin waving my arms furiously and making slashing motions at my neck. Uh, But Bishop Buchanan uh, was the Bishop of Woolwich, which is in the south of London, uh, south of the river. Uh, he, uh, He... told me something very funny that uh, he was a bishop outside of Birmingham, England uh, before he actually went back into parish ministry to be the rector of a congregation. And while there for six years, he said he learned the irrelevancy of the episcopacy, um, the irrelevance of bishops. Uh, and uh, but then uh, God uh, worked and he ended up being uh, the bishop in south of London. In, that's London Diocese or is that Suffolk? Suffolk, Suffolk Diocese. Um, and was there, and for over uh, 20 years was uh, uh, on the Church of England Liturgical Commission during a lot of great uh, upheaval and tumult when it came to liturgical changes. And uh, Bishop Buchanan did something that most evangelicals don't want to do, and that is he threw himself into liturgy. Uh, and for uh, many instances was the lone voice uh, in uh, what was a rather progressive uh, arena. And so... Um, Delighted to have him with you, uh, with us, and let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to this place and for gathering us today, and we pray that you would indeed speak through Bishop Buchanan, that you would uh, give us uh, a word, and that um, uh, you would uh, open our eyes to the glory and majesty of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Bishop, are you ready? I'm delighted to be here with you. I hope you can understand me. I fear I've not understood everything I have heard this week because we talk different languages. (laughs) Um, So I will try to be slow. I also uh, have no idea really what starting points you have for the topic I've been given tonight. Uh, What is liturgy? What is liturgy really? What does it do? Some of you will be, as it were, very well equipped in understanding. Others may be at a very early point. One of the things I do do is I travel with books. Uh, And you will find the relics of a bookstall um, through over coffee. Um, I say the relics because I've had a good chance to sell on the evening events I've been at. Very happy ones from my point of view during the week. I have one popular title, which I think overlaps with the Dean's own agenda. It's called Worship in the Letter to the Hebrews. So if you've been picking up how the Dean's teaching on Hebrews, which I understand has been in the series, then you'll find that this gives an angle, a way in to some important parts of that letter. What does the word liturgy mean? 
Well, go back to ancient Greece, where the word originates, and it meant public service. A really good bit of liturgy was to kit out a, a warship at your own expense as an Athenian citizen. And it came to mean any form of service, so curiously, is, has become almost interchangeable with service for church purposes. <laughs> but in most people's minds, I think, it means having a very formal and set pattern to your worship uh, and a non-liturgical event uh, you don't know where you're going in quite the same way as when you have the pattern set out uh, and of course there are many instances like a wedding where we know what the order ought to be and you couldn't imagine it being non-liturgical though there's also a very large amount of informal getting together of Christians that doesn't apparently have that kind of agenda but is people going, uh, as it were, where they want to go, or if you want to divinize it, going where the Spirit leads them. Now, how do we stand in relation to the New Testament in this respect? The problem is, we never have any real description in a sequence, in an order, of what they did when they met. St. Paul tells them what they ought to do in his letters, uh, but it isn't, as it were, saying this is the next part of the service and this is how you do that, and this is the one after that and that's how you do that. It is much more general advice. In 1 Corinthians 14, you have the description of assembly where clearly they are all having an opportunity to speak. And the important thing that St. Paul is getting across is that you should understand each other. Uh, some of the material there about speaking in unknown tongues uh, has been the charter for Pentecostalism. But I think it's quite possible that simply that Corinth had different languages. It was the commercial crossroads of the world and all different languages would have been present and he is saying you're not to use your own language if other people don't understand it unless you've got a translator and then you then you can address each other and you can address God he says I want my next door neighbor to be able to say amen when I have given praise to God we have to understand each other and then we build each other up by such understanding but in 1 Corinthians 14, there is no mention of meals. No mention of the Lord's Supper. But in chapter 11, there you've got Paul trying to sort out troubles at the Lord's Supper. And it's quite important to us to try and discern what lay behind the troubles, what, what, there was, what was the kind of event he wanted to visualize and to correct and to have going in a really beneficial way. And so you have, on the one hand, the condemnation of the way in which people were bringing their own food along and then tucking into it under other people's noses who were hungry. It was, a bring, in our terms, bring your own grub meal and, uh, and you sat down and you ate it in what looks to us an appallingly unloving way uh, but clearly the coming together for meals was part of the way in which the church met 
and at this meal there was apparently the sacred element in the meal the Lord I've, <coughs> I've passed on to you he says this is 1 Corinthians 11 around verses 14 15 16 I passed on to you that which I also received that the Lord Jesus in the same night that he was betrayed took bread gave thanks and you know how the narrative goes and we call it the narrative of institution and remember he hadn't been there he's talking second generation he that which I received is quite presumably what he's been told by the Christian church into which he came after he was converted and found them doing what the Lord had commanded the bread this is my body says Jesus after supper the cup this is my blood of the new covenant and St. Paul in a, tells them to purify their celebration. If there's going to be this selfishness and unlove around, you'd do far better to eat at home. Now, obviously, within a generation or two, the Christians didn't meet for major social meals as a regular event. They retained the bread and the wine without the context of the meal, which is why to this day we do them together rather than one during the, after the main course and one after the whole supper's over, which is how it is actually portrayed to us. I suspect, though obviously we don't know, that the meal context dropped away because of persecution. If you are under persecution, if you are going to spend, as it were, the minimal time that your discipleship needs to build each other up and to belong to each other, then you don't do that which is unnecessary, you do that which is necessary. And uh, there are slightly exaggerated cartoon pictures of, of people sneaking out of the back gate after dark or before, before dawn and meeting for the Lord's Supper very early in the day and going, going to work as though there'd never been anywhere of that sort, uh, under, when there was always a risk of persecution. And that ran in the Roman Empire until 313 AD, and the elaborating of services only came with the freedom, as it were, to spend time uh, in the way you may be doing this morning. However, if we go back to the New Testament, Although I said there's no formal order, there is quite a lot of material. I mean, obviously, they still read the Old Testament scriptures and knew them, and they quote the Psalms. St. Paul writes about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and it could well be that they were writing new hymns of their own. Uh, there's a, little, there's a little verse in Ephesians 5, verse 14, which says, Awake, you who sleep, and rise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Uh, and uh, my first sermon as a bishop, I preached in Darien, Connecticut. I was made bishop on a Thursday, came over on a Saturday, and did my first sermon uh, on a Sunday. And we had a large congregation at 8 o'clock, or something like that time, 
and I pulled Terry Fulham, the director, I pulled his leg a little and said, you write choruses about all sorts of things, but here's one in scripture, awake you who sleep and rise from the dead and Christ will give you life, which you haven't written a chorus for. There he said, when we came to the 10 o'clock service, he had written one. And, uh, and, we, and we do and with a tune and we sang it. Um, it, was, it was obviously the sort of thing that would stick in people's minds as a rhythm. What about, oh, I ought to be testing you. Uh, what, ha, what do you find at Philippians 2.5? Offers? Anyone got a hand up? Whoa. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, right? But took upon himself the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man, but humbled himself even to death, death on the cross. You know, do you know it? Wherefore God has highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess. Now, what was that? Was it a hymn? Was it a creed? It wasn't, I think, just made up by Paul as he went along. It's got a meter to it, a rhythm, a poetry, and it's memorable. Uh, and, of course, it's passed in our lives into, into a hymn. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Uh, uh, and, and, we, and we sing it from that. Uh, <clears throat> I think, uh, in fact, modern-day Christians have much more idea of the hymn than they have of the Scripture. And uh, um, it's well worth knowing the root of it. And in passing, this, uh, you might like to note that the phrase... To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. It comes from Isaiah 45. Sorry, Isaiah 45. <laughs> where God alone is asserting his uniqueness and his sovereignty over against all the idols of Babylon. And he says, to me, and me alone, Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. And Paul quotes it perfectly without apology about Jesus Christ. A very interesting passing testimony to the deity of our Lord Jesus. But that's, that's not what I've been hired to say to you. Uh, it happens in passing. There was a Lord's Prayer. Did Jesus just intend it for private use? Or did he intend it for to be used together? And if you go back to Matthew 6, you will find that Jesus says there, if you want to pray, go into your closet, close the door, and pray on your own to your Father who sees in secret. Don't do your prayers before other people. If you want to give, Go into your own room, close the door, whatever, and write your check or your standing order or whatever it may be when no one else can see. A private individual act. And the same about fasting. If you fast, don't let other people know it. You do these things, as it were, to God. But in the middle of all that, he has the Lord's Prayer. And suddenly the singulars have become plural. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. So it seems to me extremely likely 
that the Lord's Prayer was for the Lord's people to say together. And that is how the Christian church has interpreted it and worked with it ever since. That we really can't contemplate meeting together for a main service without the use of the Lord's Prayer. But there's all sorts of other bits and pieces. When uh, Jesus gives the command to go into all the world and baptize, they are to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's the only point actually in the New Testament where the Trinity is put out in just those terms like that. And in general, the church has since then has treated this as a formula for baptism. There are, there are ways of baptizing perfectly Christianly that don't involve it, but in general, the church has picked up that particular formula. Or you'll find at the end of 2 Corinthians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you, which again has this rhythm that attests the doctrine of the Trinity, not quite as explicitly as the baptismal one, but looks as though it was repeatable. That the, uh, uh, that the New Testament church had in it a large amount of repeatable material of which we get hints here and a bit there and a little piece over there, although we don't know the actual order in which they did things. And as I said earlier, it looks as though the real thing for which they met was the Lord's Supper. Jesus had said, do this, and so this is the one thing we know we must do as disciples of his. But along with that, of course, you've got all the injunctions to pray for the world, for rulers, for those who are ill, and you've got built all the way through the necessity for teaching. That is the nature of scripture readings that we have, whether Old Testament or New, within the liturgical frame that we have as our Sunday or other midweek pattern. What you don't have, curiously enough, in Scripture is much hint of a liturgical year. We have been accustomed to saying, well, you've got a kind of syllabus for the year in which we will give great emphasis to the Incarnation at Christmas time, to Jesus' baptism, to his ministry on earth, leading his people, teaching them, healing confronting the Pharisees, it might be, going up to Jerusalem to his passion. And then, so then, Holy Week, Good Friday, Easter, you would have this great culmination of the church year uh, in which we acclaim the resurrection. And uh, you, you then have a 50 days before we celebrate Pentecost. So the syllabus has an element of keeping the balance of Christian faith before us, though in principle it is there all the time whenever we say a creed. The, the creed gives the, the basic outline of our faith and we have a chance through the year to emphasize particular parts of it. I think you must bear in mind also that teaching in church can, on the one hand may well follow a syllabus as it ought to, but it mustn't do it in, um, as it were, an undiscerning way. 
If a crisis occurs, that becomes the agenda. Uh, I'm of an age to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and it shook us in Britain. It must have been much more so here. And it was the th I was a curate. It was the theme of my rector's sermon. Uh, didn't matter what the syllabus said that, that, that week. This was what was in everybody's minds. Um, I have no idea how you approach elections in that respect. Um, I think we have to whisper to each other about that one. I'm not, not supposed to give any advice or to hear too much about it. But um, we try again in, in Britain, I suppose, to move a bit with social events. Uh, I had an extraordinary thing in relation to 9-11. I, I, I was a working bishop. And for the only time I think I was ever a working bishop, I had three Sundays with no sermon to preach. <laughs> and I confess, I never, ever did address it. But everybody else did. The world had changed. And you don't just say, well, this particular Sunday, this is the gospel reading, and we're going to look at that. You actually say, this is what's on people's hearts and minds, and we must address it. So, uh, so along with the syllabus given objectively by the calendar and the lectionary, uh, you, you also have to be living with the actual persons of today and addressing that. And, the, and it may well be the, the hymnody, for instance, can, can be chosen for the latter purpose of, of folk in sorrow or folk in, over, in great joy, whatever it may be, that we, that we try and adapt the hymnody as well as the other parts of the liturgy. And I wanted to say a word about hymnody anyway, because if you have at the back of your mind the notion that uh, formal liturgy is um, got encrusted, ossified, stuck in the past, somebody else's prayer is not ours, uh, and we need something, uh, as it were, more immediate, more extemporary. And in many of the churches that are known as, as non-liturgical, Baptist Friends, Brethren, and, and various other churches out beyond there, uh, you'll, you'll find you, you do not know the program in advance. And you will have quite a lot of extemporary utterance. And you heard me saying, well, extemporary things are what we're looking at at Corinth. But you don't usually sing hymns you made up as you went along. <laughs> you draw upon the riches of the past. It was said, already Sankey, does that mean any meaning to you? You know Sankey's hymns and causes? He was a great American evangelist of the 1870s and 1880s. He came over to Britain. And he, he had a song called The 99 That Safely Lay in the Shelter of the Folds. Does that ring a bell? No, I don't know. Oh, well, different generation. Uh, and, um, but they were said of hit, uh, that, he, that somebody put a poem in his hand and he made up the tune as he went along. And the critics have generally said, yes, it sounded like it. <laughs> but the riches of past hymnody. We were singing Luther this morning. You sing Wesley frequently. That is something that we will be, we know even the non 
liturgical churches draw upon. And therefore, there was nothing in principle different with having, as it were, the set prayers um, which we're going to use, and even a set confession. One of the characteristics of the human race is we know we go on sinning. So that Archbishop Cranmer, when he wrote the first prayer book, could write a congregational confession, confident it would meet people where next Sunday. <laughs> and therefore you get a formal shape not one in which you actually get a chance to confess all your sins specifically. It might take a little bit longer. But in which you're standing before God because you are yourself unworthy comes out very clearly and is met by the declaration of His grace and therefore ought to be met by the experience of his forgiveness. And so we have a pattern in which to come to communion we need to be in love and charity with our neighbours was the old phrase in the old prayer book. I don't know, I can't remember where we had it this morning, I don't think we did. Um, you, you have to be in love and charity with your neighbours and that is brought out not only by confessing to God of course but by the greeting of peace. The greeting of peace uh, coming in my lifetime is a revival uh, and um, now in most of my experience people would miss it terribly if they don't have it uh, and it can be an occasion of course for um, just greeting your neighbour and catching up on news but the point of it is this not that every man should kiss his wife there's plenty of other opportunity for that it is that you should be at peace with each other and particularly with anyone you're not at peace with. It also ought to be a question of, well, if I'm going to share the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper with so-and-so, I'd better get right with him. And very occasionally in my life, I've had someone come to me in that frame to put something right before going to communion. But the peace has done something much more than that, of course. It's given people faces. The tradition of church in which, when I was young, was you sat in pews like you do here and you only saw people's backs. They were not people. And so something which has not been theologized, but which actually the fact is that when you turn and people have faces, then they are people. And then you have not just come for personal edification. You've not just come that you should hear the sermon and, and get some modicum of help for your own life and you should go to communion and receive the bread and wine for yourself. You have to be with these people. And you go back to that 1 Corinthians 11 situation where Paul was saying, you see, you've got to be right with each other at a meal <laughs> before you can truly share the Lord's Supper. He actually says it is not the Lord's Supper you are doing. So even if they had the formal right words, he's saying it is a caricature, a perversion of the Lord's Supper you're observing because you're not 
in true love and charity with your neighbor. And that, that's what the piece is about. That's why it comes to the position it does before we start the sacramental action, after we finish the ministry of the word. And of course, what has then happened over the years is that it has settled down into a very fixed shape. First of all, in the early church, I suspect that people who led the services, bishops in second and third centuries, started to find they were using the same words, for instance, of the prayer of thanksgiving, the Eucharistic prayer, same words week by week over the bread and wine. And they might even have written it down and given it to their assistant to use. And you start to get somewhat fixed forms. And the church year builds up and you know what passages of scripture you're going to read. And it slowly takes a fixed form which gives identity to your church. This is the church where we do things like this. No one can claim the particular order is of commandment, but it is, a, as it were, an order that's been hammered out. And that's the background in the Roman Catholic Church of the early Middle Ages and the later Middle Ages up to the Reformation. Then, when the Reformation came in England, and I know you were a long way off from that in, in years and in culture and in, even in miles, um, when the Reformation came, because it was a top-down Reformation, it was organised by, <laughs> imposed in the name of the monarch in Edward VI reign and actually by the monarch in Elizabeth's reign, uh, then the changes of the liturgy were, uh, enabled them to enforce, and that really is what happened, the Reformation. They threw out all the masses for the dead. They threw out all the invocation of the saints. They threw out everything that they thought was contrary to Scripture. And they reshaped it Yes, by authority, uh, and forbade the clergy to do anything else in order to promote the scriptural truth as they saw it. And, and the joy we have today, of course, is to say, actually, they did a pretty good job. And uh, in particular, in the Reformation in England, there was a further, dare I say, God-given bonus because, I mean, I can't commend, really, the, the um, autocratic or, or dic dictatorial way in which it was done, but I can rejoice at the result. And the particular extra bonus we had was that Cranmer had not only got the political power and the reformed scriptural doctrine, he had this amazing gift of writing the rhythmic English language, which you were reciting this morning in humble access or whatever else it might be, which has endured the years and which has this poetry and rhythm in it, which has made it memorable and is part of what has given the Book of Common Prayer from those days a great standing in the whole English-speaking world, even amongst those who, who are not themselves believers. The, the authorised... King James Bible on the one hand and the Book of Common Prayer on the other 
became great monuments to the formation of English language, partly, I say, because of the great skills of Thomas Cranmer from which we benefit. Now, once you've got the notion that the liturgy is imposed by authority, then you find, of course, as the Church of England sends folk all around the world, so the prayer book goes with them. Uh, but in America, for some reason, they didn't like the benefits of being colonies. Now, I can't understand that, of course, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but they uh, did their own uh, declaration, and you're the inheritors, and, of course, they couldn't go on using the prayer book as it was, because you couldn't pray for King George without somebody uh, see, looking for a rifle. Uh, uh, <clears throat> And they took the opportunity to go to a slightly different source for the communion service, because uh, Samuel Seabury, is that name in you? He was the, the first bishop of Connecticut, and therefore the Episcopal Church, um, got his liturgy from Scotland, where, <laughs> the, where the Anglicans, if you can call them Anglicans, had been followers of uh, the Jacobites, and Bonnie Prince Charlie, and were not under the authority of the monarch at all. So you, had a, you actually had a church freely creating its own liturgy. So that happened in America, but, of course, it happened with this kind of notion that we impose the liturgy, and part of the identity is going using it. You're looking at me. Am I, am I running out of time or, or going in the wrong direction? You're saved by the bell. <laughs> Yes, Bishop, I'm so sorry to cut you off, but, but we have to vacate the premises. Well, yes, I, I, I realize that happened, but, I, couldn't, but I, have, I wasn't watching my watch. But I will say that if, uh, if you're interested, I, I feel terrible because he has so much to say, but if you are interested in further, again, uh, there's a bookstall uh, where a lot of his works are that you can continue in. Uh, but Bishop, would you uh, dismiss us with a blessing? Yeah, let me get him with the last word because I, I realized I was in the middle of a sentence almost. <laughs> As the text of, script, of, of, the, of the liturgy gives you the word of God, a friend of mine once said, liturgy is a, a way of doing Bible. Well, what you have to do then is go with it. Put your own lives with it and under it and behind it and, and go with it. Now, a blessing. Yes. Look upon us, your love and mercy, our blessed Father, Give us joy in your service. Enable us to do your work and to build your kingdom. Hear us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. The blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.